Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer, and welcome to The Crux. And this is Mike Fernandez. So uh, Mike and I are back from our uh, holiday hiatus. Did you have a good one, Mike? I ate too much. Yeah, me too. Uh, everybody asks me, I say highly caloric break for me. And uh, I'm paying for it now, or at least my belt is paying for it now. We have a great guest coming up uh, on this episode of The Crux. Uh, I did want to start, though, Mike. Both you and I have uh, relationships with Harold Burson. And over yeah. the holidays, Harold passed away at the age of 98. The easiest way to describe him, sort of the Babe Ruth of PR, right? He's, Absolutely. He's the guy. I mean, he's he's amazing, and I feel blessed that uh, I got to interact with him. Yeah, uh, really amazing. I, Harold must have been 95 when I left GE, or 94, in that range. And GE put out a press release that I was leaving my position in, at GE, and the phone rang in five minutes, and it was Harold Burson. Yeah. And he just wanted to talk with me, and and uh, about my career and and everything was so nice. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember that uh, most about Harold is that just the ability to touch people like that uh, at moments in their careers when oh. you needed oh. so, something like that. You know, that. He, he was thoughtful and mm -hmm. kind. Um, uh, I first interacted with him almost on a client basis. Right. Yeah. Uh, my first job after leaving Capitol Hill, we had a, a big product launch and we had hired uh, Burson Marsteller and Harold was involved in right. some of the meetings and some of the discussions. And from that, I mean, it was highly, it was a highly successful product launch. And I was very much involved with the folks at Burson. Weber was also involved yeah, in that too. Uh, but uh, Harold pulled me aside and said, we should have a conversation. It was, it ended up being one of my first of many lunches with him. Yeah, same here, yeah. And uh, he, uh, and at the time, you know, I was a rookie. I was, you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'd worked on Capitol Hill and yeah, I'd worked at, at, at Kodak. But uh, he, he really sort of encouraged me and said, you know, you could be a chief communications officer. You could possibly even be a chief marketing officer. And in that day, you know, there wasn't anybody no. in that role who was Latino. Right. And so he was very encouraging to me. And then what a joy it was when I was the U.S. Oh, CEO. Oh, oh, yeah. I got to see this guy every day in his 90s. You know, he came into the office. Amazing. You know, and he would come in about 9.30 or 10 o'clock, and then he'd leave at about 3. <laughs> and I would tease him. I said, I said, Harold, people are going to start to talk. <laughs> and he would laugh. But he, he was always in the game. Yes. Uh, and, you know, something would happen, and he'd give you a quick call, or he'd poke, your, poke his head in. Yeah. And, and it was always tremendous. Yeah. I, I, I'm a big fan, too, of his... Focus on persuasion. Yeah, you know, Harold was a big believer that that was our job to be persuasive. Yeah, um, he saw us almost as social scientists. Yeah, that's right. Communications has um, evolved sort of to this collaborator and and sort of diplomatic role in mm -hmm. some ways at big companies. Ultimately, I do still think the job is to persuade people that uh, 
you're worthy of their trust. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and you know, he back in the 1970s began talking about yeah. the fact that uh, corporations had a greater responsibility. Right. It was kind of interesting. It, it seems like now we just have some corporations waking up to that. Yeah. Right. Uh, and and he also was very good in a crisis. You yeah. know, this is a guy who helped Johnson and Johnson as yeah. they navigated the Tylenol crisis right. back in the 1980s. This is a guy who uh, worked with Coca. Cola, yeah. you know, post New Coke. Uh, he was an amazing individual. Uh, one of the most touching stories about him dealing with a client, because I knew it meant a lot to him personally, is that he had counseled the University of Mississippi, his mm -hmm. alma mater, to pull down the Confederate flag. At the football game. At the right? yeah. yeah. Well, that's that was the secret, was yeah. getting the football coach it, to agree, to, to that, agree that right. this made a lot of sense because the football coach was losing recruits to LSU and Alabama because University of Mississippi still had the still rebel flag. Interesting. Amazing. Yeah. And if you go back, I mean, just a man for all seasons and read some of his writing from the Nuremberg trials. Oh, he covered the Nuremberg trials that's right. um, as uh, a you know, military writer. And it's just extraordinary. So he and I got into trading military books. Ah. You know, he'd send me one, I'd send him one about World War II, and uh, we had a lot of fun with it. So great yeah. man, and yeah. uh, his, his legacy yeah. will... Well, and he was ahead of the game, yeah. you know. I mean, you even think about the founding of the company. Yeah. You know, the idea that an advertising company and a PR company right. could come together. Uh, you know, the this whole idea of social accountability mm -hmm. for companies and, and kind of looking at what we do as key to strategy, mm -hmm. not just being a standalone, kind let's go talk to people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, in fact, I told my class the other day uh, that it is uh, one of the things that really sits with me is something he said back in the 1980s, which is, you know, communications in order to do it well. It needs to be something that either moves or purposely sustains right. a perception, a behavior, or a business result. If it doesn't do those things, it's just noise. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, to so now we're going to go talk about noise. Yeah, we're going to talk about a little bit of noise, but in, um, I think in a, in a productive way, because I, I, I do think there's a clear roadmap for communicators coming out. We, we just had the 50th Davos. Mm -hmm. And at the 50th Davos, um, a couple of things came out. The first was the trust annual trust barometer, mm -hmm. the 20th, that uh, the Edelman team puts out. And uh, I thought it was a really interesting study. And Richard Edelman, at the session in Davos, said essentially people are scared. Yeah. In a time when most economies are booming, mm -hmm. uh, we know the economy in the United States has been doing well. Uh, that's a that's a really dramatic statement. So if you dig down into some of the uh, findings of the of trust barometer, which is global, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, Richard said most people said traditional institutions such as government, media, business, and NGOs don't have a vision for the future mm -hmm. uh, that they can get behind. And fewer than half of the respondents express any trust in these organizations, yeah, yeah. right? So they don't trust uh, big institutions. They don't think they have a vision for the future. And, I, you know, one of the findings that I really found interesting, Mike, coming out of, if you dig into the, into the findings, is people don't believe that business can be both competent mm -hmm. and ethical. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you're doing well, you mm -hmm. must be cheating. 
Yeah. And if you're not doing so well, you, maybe you're an ethical that company. It almost so, comes back to Herald Social Accountability. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I'd love, there was also the uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, survey that came out of global CEOs, about 1,500 of them. And they're pessimistic about the economy for the first time. And it's like fact, more than half, I guess, yeah, say the exactly. economy is going to turn south. And and as pessimistic as they've been uh, since 2009. And so I want to get your general reaction to that. But I, I also want to dive into some of the things that CEOs are actually worried about. But what do you think is going on with this trust and people think lack of vision? Well, I think part of the challenge is that, you know, when there is problems in in, 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 cor- in the corporate world, they tend to get magnified in right. the world we live in today because right. of, you know, mobile phones yes, and yeah. social media and the like. Uh, the other element is, is that while there has been economic growth in capital markets, particularly in the U.S. and Europe, growth in general over the last decade has been very uneven, right. particularly in the U.S., Canada, and, and Europe. Now, all of that said, that is matched against some very positive news. If you look at Eastern Europe, uh, you look at places in Asia, certainly China, Indonesia, right. but also other smaller countries like Cambodia and Vietnam. Uh, you look at uh, some countries even in Africa like Cote d'Ivoire, uh, have actually seen pretty good growth. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it's it's very uneven. Right. And so when the economy is actually creating a divide between haves and have-nots, and it's getting, and there's more tension as a result of that. And there are stories about people in corporate life not exactly towing the line. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's a little bit like a powder keg. Yeah, and it, you, you see that, Mike. In and again, these are global results. Uh, in the Edelman Trust Barometer, it asked, "Is capital does capitalism work for you?" Yeah, and fifty-six percent of people uh, surveyed said no. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, some of the talking around this, I, I think, is, is is uncomfortable. I mean, for me at least. I mean, I, you hear Mark Benioff, you know, from Salesforce, right? And, and he says that, that you know, cap- capitalism is dead, right? Uh, and I, I think that's a bit. Yeah. Dangerous. Mm-hmm. Also, when you actually get him to talk about it, he moves the conversation in a different way. Right. It's just he just—it's a different kind of capitalism, right, he right. says. And then he gets into the messaging that we started to see, you know, out of the business roundtable right. and other groups around how we need to reestablish really what our corporate purpose is. Yeah. Well, along those lines, I'm going to I'm going to go into Davos, but I want to one other thing from the PwC survey. Mm-hmm is they ask annually these 1500 CEOs, what are your top threats Mm -hmm. for the year? What do you think, what keeps you up at night? What's most concerning to you? And so the results for 2020 over regulations, number one, Mm -hmm. which is kind of an interesting statement from an American CEO since regulations have been moving in the the other direction, Mm -hmm. trade conflicts, this uncertainty, they're very uncertain about economic growth uh, pervades that really moved up the list this year, but we've been hearing a lot about purpose, as you say, from the roundtable, and and we're going to talk about Davos in a minute. But it takes you all the way down to number eleven to to see climate change yeah. on the list. 
And that Which was talked a lot about at Davos. Exactly. It was sort of the centerpiece of Davos this yeah, year. Yeah, because I guess a week or two weeks out was when Larry Fink yeah, from BlackRock yeah. did his thing and talking about how their organizational model going forward, they were going to be less vested yeah. in companies that were in fossil fuels. Yeah. And, and any company that had more than, I think, 25% right. invested in fossil fuels, they would no longer be invested in by some certain day. Exactly. It really is interesting. And you know, how do you make those cuts? Yeah. You know, and, and and you and I were having a conversation off mic here about the reality of transition to cleaner fuels. It's not as simple as, right. as you might think. You know, we're still trying to bring electricity to the billion people in the world who don't have it. So things like natural gas. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's interesting because I, I think people in the energy world have long looked at like natural gas being a, a transitional yeah. play, right? Yeah. So you'd move away at some point from from coal oh, and fuel. then it would be the bridge yeah. that would get us so that the renewable the alternative forms of energy supply would would have a chance to catch up economically and building the appropriate infrastructure for all of that. And what's fascinating, and I was involved uh, part of a, a, a corporate group as advisors to the Obama White House right. in preparation for COP21 in Paris. And, and what's fascinating to me today is that you know, we're nowhere near either as a country or as large corporations in terms of being in line to deliver what was in COP21. No, now, now, add to that, I mean, obviously, President Trump backed the U.S. Some, out of yeah, the agreement. We've moonwalked on, we moon on this issue. But it's still fascinating to me that the push going into Davos and through Davos was to sign on the dotted line mm -hmm. of net zero, right. which says, you know, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. And boy, that's going to be a really, not, not, not that I don't think that's something to strive for, right. but I think it's a difficult ask. It's a difficult place to get. And it's made more difficult by an industry you're, you know mm -hmm. something about, which is nuclear energy. Right. Because, you know, nuclear energy showed a I lot risk. of hope. Yeah. You know, for providing electricity mm -hmm. without having to use fossil fuels. And in the United States, still something like a third of all of our electricity power, yeah. still comes from nuclear power. But you've got since Fukushima, a lot of projects have been shut down. There were three projects that were active like two years ago. None of those look like yeah. they're going to come to fruition in the United States. Germany retreated Germany completely. <laughs> retreated completely. So you look at that and you say... How do we get there? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, and I've got lots of faith in the science community, and right. maybe you know we'll have something miraculous happen in the world of nuclear fusion that gets people comfortable. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. You know, you start looking even at the electric cars and the infrastructure that's slowly building. Yeah. Can you know, will that get us there? In paint, part? Me, paint me a bit, as a bit of a cynic, but electric cars they have to generate the electricity to produce the electricity. <laughs> <laughs> to produce the power for the yeah, cars. Yeah, That's yeah. That's what uh, yeah. people don't realize. Yeah. And in some cases, you drive an electric car powered by coal. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, so... Yeah. So, uh, so I think the the intent and the motivations are probably there. Right. But this is not an exercise where you push a button or flip a switch. So, speaking of that. So, this was, as I said, the 50th year of Davos. Did you, when you were at Cargill, did your CEO go to Davos? Yes, a, a number of our executives yeah, did. Yeah, we did. And, and I actually was part of a planning session that would help set the agenda. Yeah, yeah. Our CEO did not go. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we're going through a tough period at GE, and mm -hmm. so showing up to a Swiss chalet, uh, he didn't feel like it was the best use of his time. But we were, we were a sponsor, and we were involved in, you know, many of the things. Face I said he wasn't into fondue. Yeah, he wasn't into fondue. <laughs> I think it was an Angel Angelina Jolie. There was a period there where she became sort of the face of Davos, you know, and he thought, well, you know. But to your point, great place for uh, customy customers, yeah. and thought leaders, influencers, etc. Yeah. However, you know, this was the 50th year and there's some hand-wringing going on now about Davos. Mm -hmm. uh, not only things like that are obviously and optically wrong where, you know, the, the centerpiece of the discussion is on climate change and everybody jets in in their jets and the limos that clog the streets, as you know, right. and th that kind of thing. But does anything really get done? And David Gellis, who's a great business writer for the New York Times, is uh, is was writing about this is that most of the CEOs were at Davos recently the one last week they talked a lot about climate change mm -hmm. but many of them say I don't know if we're going to be able to do yeah, anything do we or if there? we're going to do anything about it but I want to read this one thing if you don't know much about Davos this describes it completely so there are meetings all day on topics it's this little tiny town if you don't get in a really good hotel you're living in a dump for the week right I mean, literally, it's like not, you know, you don't have your own bathroom. Or it's a long commute. Yeah, it's a long commute. Anyways, but in the evenings, Masters of the Universe will hop from, say, a dinner hosted by George Soros, the billionaire philanthropist, to a wine party sponsored by Anthony Scaramucci, the financier <laughs> and former Trump administration official. J.P. Morgan's chief executive, Jamie Dimon, is hosting a cocktail reception at a museum. Mark Benioff, the Salesforce co-founder and co-chief CEO, co-chief executive, will buy out a, a nightclub and flying a pop star. And here's, this is from a guy, Ian Bremmer, who you know, mm -hmm. very smart guy. Here's yeah. the value of Davos, right? Six days of work at Davos is easily six months of work in other places yeah. for these people. The intensity is valuable. And we always found that too. You could mm -hmm. you could shoot a rubber band off yeah. in any room and hit a you know hit right. a GE customer, right? You right. Know, three or four. Well, and in fact, we used to go through an exercise when I was at Cargill that, you know, the importance of Davos wasn't necessarily being in the room for some of the conversations. Yes. It was you have this uh, swell of people from different sectors that are important to your business. And it gave you an opportunity to have little quick conversations or to invite them into a discussion right. or to participate in a discussion that mattered either to a customer, a supplier, a government agency, an NGO. So what it was like is, and to Ian's point, and Ian and I have talked about this before, is that you know, you could get so much work done mm -hmm. because to contact and intersect with Completely. all the people that you might build your calendar around, it might take you months to have all of those conversations that now could be held in a matter of days. Exactly. So 50th anniversary, some of the founders are sort of thinking about where does Davos go from here? You know, one of the things that they have on their plate that's really important, it's still overwhelmingly white male. Mm -hmm. uh, I think 22% were women this, mm -hmm. the, of the attendees this time, which is an all-time high, which says a lot about where it started. Yeah. But ultimately, it may look on TV like, you know, opera ski, opportunity, but a lot gets done. Yeah. A lot gets done. I went to one in one of the regional meetings in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, and 
when Africa a few years ago was beginning to boom, yeah. uh, as they say, and from a GE standpoint, it was just incredibly valuable. The oh, oh and we found the same in China. You know, we go to Dalian, which was one of where they had the regional. Exactly. Air. I mean, it was great. Yes. So last topic. So we're in the middle of impeachment trial in the United States here, remarkably. And I would just what I don't want to talk about the politics of it. I want to ask you about the communications and the performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we tape this, mm-hmm. we're in the middle of the Republican defense of the mm-hmm. president. And so the Democrats have rested their case, if you will. Adam Schiff, the congressman from California, led that. I just want to say, uh, read a couple of things that have been written about it from a communications and, again, executive performance, if you were thinking about this. So this is a guy, Walter Dellinger, who's former acting U.S. Solicitor General, and he's a professor at Duke, said that Schiff was not just good, but I'd have to say one of the most impressive performances of a lawyer I have ever seen. Now, Schiff gave the, sort of was the case manager, if you will. Mm -hmm. The lead prosecutor. The lead prosecutor on this. But I want to read, you know, he started with Alexander Hamilton. He meticulously laid out the case. But I want to read a tactic that he used. We talk a lot about storytelling and narrative. Mm -hmm. So this is from a poetry critic who's quoted in the New York Times, a professor of English, at Wellesley, described Schiff's strategy as telling a story in all of its sordid turns, building up to gaps that expose the administration's refusal to turn over documents or witnesses. For example, Smith described a, ca- a cable that William Taylor, the former ambassador to Ukraine, sent to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, in which Taylor told of, quote, the folly he saw in withholding the aid to the Ukraine, the military aid to Ukraine. And Schiff said in his presentation, would you like me to read that cable to you right now? I would like to read it to you right now, except I don't have it because the State Department wouldn't provide it. So this kind of gap sort of communications is mm-hmm. one of the phrases for it, I thought was extremely... Kind uh, of the empty debate chair. That's right, the empty debate chair. But overall, the reviews for Schiff were very good, mm-hmm. yet didn't move anybody in the room on the other side, on the yeah. Republican side. So anyway, I just want yeah, to get yeah, your no, thoughts. I, I think that says more about the condition of our politics yeah. than it does about uh, Adam Schiff's performance. And persuasiveness, uh, yeah. Yeah, because it was interesting to me because uh, I agree with a lot of those assessments yeah. of, of his performance. Uh, when, uh, you know, when we first started with the hearings in the House and whatnot, I didn't know how effective, you know, all of that mm-hmm. was from a communication standpoint. But I thought that Adam Schiff was masterful yeah. in in kind of painting the picture of what we knew and the elements that we didn't know. The only reason we did not know them uh, wasn't from lack of trying. It wasn't from lack of knowledge of what those it, documents, what that information was. It continued to lead back to the fact that the president of the United States, uh, the administration of the United States would not provide those documents or the people or the people to Congress. Right. And, you know, this is kind of high stakes in not so much just in terms of politics, but I think it's high stakes in terms of what does it mean to have a government in the United States of America today, because I think it sets in motion 
a lot of future risks yes. that are, are more untenable mm-hmm. than maybe even the current situation. Right. And it raises the question of, I mean, I mean these folks took an oath. I mean, at right. the beginning of this trial, you take an oath. Right. Um, uh, to be open. To be open and impartial. And so we'll see. But well, And our government is founded on checks and balances. Completely. And one of the tools of checks and balance is the impeachment ability of Congress, as well as the ability for Congress to hold the executive accountable. And how can Congress hold the executive accountable if the executive will not provide the appropriate information for that accountability? Right. And to make a judgment. So... Uh, more to come on this, but I do think Schiff's presentation, parts of it or all of it in some cases, law schools, I think from a, if you were training mm-hmm. uh, executives mm-hmm. on communications, on mm-hmm. how to use narratives and storytelling, mm-hmm. on a very complex and somewhat arcane uh, discussion, I think from Hamilton through you know this his actual performance, I thought it was excellent. So one last thing on impeachment, being sort of a history nerd, I went back to 1974 and was looking through some of the Committee on the Judiciary oh, yeah. proceedings uh, in the from the archives, National Archives, and I just, it, it's, you know, we just celebrated Martin Luther King's birthday. Dr. King you know, was a student here at uh, at yeah. Boston University, and I came across Congresswoman, Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. Oh, from Texas, from Houston. Yeah, and she was a freshman, 1974. And she got appointed to this committee on the judiciary, which was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And she was eloquent. And so eloquent. And, and that's the one thing I'd like to just emphasize is she begins by talking about, and on the Ar- National Archives, you can go in and get her hand-edited notes. These wow. are her actual edits to her written statement. She talks about when they heard the preamble to the Constitution about we the people. And being an African-American, she said it was very eloquent. But when that document was completed on September 17th in 1887, I was not included in that we the people, mm-hmm. which is so powerful. Yeah. Um, and then uh, as to the uh, issue in front of them, I love this line. Today I'm an inquisitor, to your point. I'm an inquisitor, was her opening. And she went on to say, my faith in the Constitution is whole. It is complete. It is total. I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, and the destruction of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. If you read her entire statement, it just restores your faith, you know, a bit in this, you know, the kinds of people that we do have in this country. And we're just not seeing a lot of it now. Well, what was it? Uh, James Madison in one of the Federalist Papers talks about, you know, if men were angels. Right. Exactly. Um, and uh, what she did and what Adam Schiff has done. Yeah. And uh, at different times in our history, Republicans and Democrats yeah. uh, have, have played to our better angels and we're a better country for right. it. Exactly. So I highly recommend I, I'll, I've uh, made a PDF of her statement. We'll put it up on our website. And if you're, you know, watching CNN some night or Fox or MSNBC. Like us news junkies. You get a little down. Go read Barbara Jordan. On the crux, we've been very keen to explore all types of communication with an idea of not only getting to the heart or crux of the story, but also exploring what it means to communicate in the 21st century. Uh, we have been proud to have our, as our guests award-winning journalists, a photojournalist, 
uh, authors, a market researcher, a documentary filmmaker, uh, brand specialists, uh, chief marketing officers, and chief communications officers. With 2020 being an election year in the U.S. and the first presidential caucuses and primaries fast approaching, we thought it timely to have as our guest an expert in the field of political communications. So Dr. Toby Berkovitz, a professor of advertising here at Boston University, has studied and written about campaigns and political television advertising, served as a political commentator on news programs, but more importantly, worked for many years as a political media consultant for various Democrats running for U.S. presidency, uh, governorships, uh, congressional and senatorial candidates uh, in over 25 states, uh, and, and for some recognizable names, uh, current Senator uh, Patrick Leahy, John Glenn, uh, Tom Harkin, Carl Levin, among others. So Toby, welcome. Thank you. After listening to the august types of people you've had on the program, I figure you've hit the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> and now it's time for a political consultant. <laughs> there we go. Bring on the mud. Uh, so what's interesting these days, we've been seeing lots of polling as, as we approach uh, the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. A number of the polls show Bernie Sanders gaining steam in Iowa, though a few polls like USA Today still show Joe Biden with a slight edge. Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg aren't that far behind. There's even a little bit of a boomlet, if you will, for Amy Klobuchar, particularly in Iowa. But as observers, how should we how should we read all of these polls and all of these surveys as we're about to go into Iowa? There's always been a debate as to how accurate polls are. This mm -hmm. is not new, but it seems to have been even more and more problematic over the last decade or so. By the way, not just in the United States, but you can look at the UK with Brexit, with the elections there. Polling has just become so difficult in terms of trying to figure out techniques to get response. So all of that being said, I guess it's just a giant caveat when you start looking at polls, especially in Iowa, where the caucuses are so different yeah, from completely. a primary. Yeah. So you've got the problem there, um, just in terms of who shows up, who actually manages to control a particular caucus. So I tend to just wait on that. Um, New Hampshire is a little more valid of a test because yes, it's voters who are voting, but even there, I think, these early states, you have to be careful. They have had so much attention for literally a year. So the voters there are so inundated with information. I think a lot of them are coming to decisions differently than we're going to see, especially when we get to Super Tuesday and you've got this wide variety of states who have not had this kind of attention uh, unless it's uh, ads from Mike Bloomberg and Tom Steyer, but besides exactly. that. Um, so it gives you an indicator, but I would be cautious as to get too bullish or bearish about pretty much any of these candidates. Really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Are there advantages when people have been through the process in the past? Clearly, you've got uh, the, the two top poll getters right now in terms of Bernie and in terms of Joe Biden. They've both been in it before. Experience does matter for candidates, but also for their staffs, for the consultants. 
you want people who have been tested and have dealt with the real world of doing well and doing badly, especially when it comes to a presidential campaign, which is so long, so intensive. Uh, so probably for Bernie in particular, it's an advantage because that was somewhat recent yeah. that he's had this experience and he can sort of bring that to play. Whereas some of Biden's experience, you know, I'm not sure 1988 is all that it's applicable. Still relevant. Right, right, right. So my guess is you've also looked at how they're communicating. And uh, given your background, as you see sort of the advertising of Bernie and 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 Joe and, and Elizabeth and Pete, and maybe even Amy too, what seemingly is working for these candidates from a communicator's standpoint and what might not be connected? It is such a different world. It used to be you just run TV spot after TV spot and then hope that you have something of a field organization, Iowa notwithstanding, mm -hmm. right. to turn people out. But now social media has absolutely come to the forefront, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or just how people consume their information. So it is so different. Who's winning that battle? Who's winning the analytics battle? Understanding who your voters are, how you communicate with them. And you cannot underestimate the power of television. It's so ironic. Every every cycle, and, and in consumer advertising as well, oh, TV advertising is dead. Um, you know, I wish I had a buck for every one of those articles I read, and then a buck for every dollar that Bloom, Bloomberg and Steyer and everybody else have been spending. So it's a mix. And what's sort of the magic formula? will vary. It depends on you, the candidate. You have someone like Elizabeth Warren, who's really putting her chips on field and organization. Mm -hmm. You have Bloomberg, who's putting his chips on TV advertising, but he's also starting to build out. Oh, and we forgot that guy, Donald Trump, who has just <laughs> been a mad dog with Twitter, but also rallies. People don't pay some enough attention to how successful Trump has been pulling people out to see him and then he drives his analytics off of that. He gets these perfect lists of who actually has come out to see me. That is an engaged voter and then you can start to parlay that. But that has really been something no one's paid much attention to. Well, that's what I want to ask you about, Toby. And before I do, it's sort of about the other side, is remind you of a conversation that we had in December um, when we were trying to forecast what was going to happen in the UK in the election there, and we both got it amazingly and widely wrong. Absolutely. Right? So, and, and that's that's yeah. why we're here today. <laughs> exactly. And then Johnson did uh, much better than we thought he was going to yeah. be. We thought it was going to be another meh, you know, kind of thing. Cliffhanger. And cliffhanger, you know. So, so I'll ask you this. So on Trump and on the Republican side, can any of the candidates we've been talking about on the Democratic side, can they beat Donald Trump? They can. The question is, will they? And no one really knows, especially when you have a candidate like Trump who is so hard to figure out mm -hmm. in terms of his communication strategy, his campaign strategy. And you look at, you just read the, the, the media and he's gone, he's toast. Um, you know, bad piece of news after bad piece of news. And so I think some of it's gonna depend on not just who the Democratic candidate is, 
But will the Democrats really coalesce behind that person? Of course they will. But the question is, will turnout be high enough, especially African-American voters? Who gives a damn about New York, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. California? But what about Michigan, Wisconsin, and then... Urban areas, right? Yeah, Exactly. And then these purple states, there's always, you know, keep hope alive. So to answer your question, yes, Trump can be beaten, but the Democrats are going to have to be really smart and Trump's going to have to be really stupid, which people think he is. So, well, (laughs) you know, and to your point, if you look at his job approval ratings, it it stated about, you know, the mid 40s, right? His base, the people who believe in him have not abandoned him despite all of the trouble that he's had and self-inflicted in most cases. So what does that tell us about the current political climate and voters? Well, first, it tells us how wrong the smarties are in the Beltway, uh, in Boston, in L.A., (laughs) in San Francisco. But it it is incredible how steady his numbers have been. I mean, he's always in the neighborhood 42 to 46 on a good day. Now, that seems horrible. Look at Barack Obama, who was like a roller coaster up right. and down. I mean, there were a lot of times that Obama would have liked to be at 44%. Yeah. Um, I also think that you have a stealth vote for Trump. And by the way, when you had mentioned Brexit yeah. and basically the UK, there probably were stealth votes there. People right. who don't want to admit they're going to vote for Boris Johnson because the media is beating up on him or people who don't want to tell a pollster in their personal circles as well. Right? Exactly. They don't want to say, uh, I'm, I'm for Trump. Unless you're with a lot of people wearing MAGA hats. Right. Standing <laughs> and so who line. are they, Toby? Are, are they business executives who benefited from a, a tax cut? Or who, who are these? Who is this silent majority, to use an old phrase, from uh, for Trump? Well, if you're looking at business people, it's not the big time executives um, because they absolutely can't say anything positive about Trump or their shareholders and everybody will go nuts. But America still has a large entrepreneurial class. Right. By the way, many of the entrepreneurs are first-generation Americans. They're in all sorts of weird parts of the country. Uh, You know, when we think of entrepreneurs, we're thinking Silicon Valley. Um, But you go to any town anywhere in America, there are people running businesses. And how are you doing these days? Pretty well. People who have 401ks, how are you doing lately? Pretty well. Uh, so, So to answer your question, the people who are for Trump are pretty wide, yeah, broader than we think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Coalition, yeah. The battle will be, does he have any appeal in the suburbs? Because that's probably where this election will be won or lost. Um, and there's a huge divide uh, by gender, too, right? Well, ironically, you go back to Trump and Clinton. Trump, if I'm not mistaken, exit polling showed Trump beat Clinton with many segments of women. Now, when it comes to unmarried women, right. uh, when it, and even college, if I'm not mistaken, I think Trump might have even beaten Clinton with college-educated wow. women. But, you know, not everyone went to Wellesley. Right. Um, right. You have a lot of people who went to state universities or community colleges um, who are college-educated. So we sometimes fail to see the actual broadness of Trump's appeal. 
The question is going to be, will there finally be a straw or a bombshell that breaks the camel's back? But, you know, my gosh, look at the litany. Yeah, Gold exactly. Star Fathers, Comey, you know. Mo- Certainly Mo- seems resilient. Oh, my yeah, yeah. gosh. Well, you know, in the Republican Party, too, the numbers are astronomical. Yeah, he is so solid with the base. Right. And this is the interesting thing when we look at impeachment now. Some of the senators who are sort of wavering on witnesses, etc., first of all, tend to be from very competitive states, and almost all of them are up for re-election, except for Mitt Romney, who we proudly think of as a person from Massachusetts. (laughs) Uh, um, But, you know, for some of these Republicans, it's at their own peril. Now, maybe they're not up for re-election now, but in two years, look at what happens in off-year elections. I would not necessarily want to be a Democrat in a swingy state in 2022. Um, You know, that could be pretty perilous, just like it is perilous now for many Republicans in these swing states in 2020. Yeah, I I want to take you back a little bit to tactics, because one of the things that I really find fascinating, particularly from your world, political advertising, is to look at Michael Bloomberg and, you know, the the, the strategy to skip uh, the early kind of retail states and to go right to the airwaves uh, seems pretty daring, albeit, you know, he's really focused while everybody else is focused on New Hampshire and Iowa and Nevada and South Carolina. He's focused on Super Tuesday. Democrats will elect something like 40% or more of all their delegates that day. You know, I, I'm going to steal a line that you gave us is, is you know, the Beatles song was Can't Buy Me Love. Uh, <laughs> but can Mike Bloomberg buy our love? I don't know if he can buy our love. The question is, can he buy our votes? Right. I think Bloomberg, from the start, I said Bloomberg's strategy was brilliant. But as Gary knows, I also thought Johnson was in a tight race. So, you know, the hell with that one. But I thought Bloomberg was brilliant. Brilliant because he doesn't have to run around Iowa pandering like he actually cares about ethanol. Right. He doesn't have to <laughs> battle it out in New Hampshire and go to lunch counters and senior centers and all the places that you have to pretend that you actually like seeing people up in New Hampshire. <laughs> right. uh, by the way, some candidates do like to yeah, see people, absolutely. Yeah. but you know, a lot of candidates, it's like they, they dread it because it's just one more chance that a baby's going to throw up on you <laughs> and then all of a sudden that goes viral. Um, I think Bloomberg was brilliant because he avoided the mess of those two states. He avoided the clown car of being on the stage with 20 people during debates. Um, He let Bernie and Warren and Biden and Buttigieg and Klobuchar all start dicing each other up. Damage each other, yeah. Um, And I don't know if he's an Iowa type of candidate. You never know about New Hampshire um, because people in New Hampshire, they they sort of march their own drummer. Um, But I think he's been really smart. We were talking earlier about field. As you get to these massive states, all of a sudden TV money matters because people in a lot of these states have peripherally. I mean, look at how many people have been watching impeachment. I forget what the tone is. It's like. Not a lot. You None. Know, yeah, uh, almost. You, you think like everybody is glued to their set. Yeah. And in fact, most people, it's like, okay, I'll watch anything. I'll watch someone repair a house. You know, that's going to be better. Well, and you know what's interesting, too? So he's not in those early states. 
and he's been plying money into the Super Tuesday states and some national and advertising. And so what's been, been interesting to me is, so in the last couple of weeks, I think there was a morning consult poll, there was a, a Fox News poll where he's broken double digits. Yeah. And uh, I guess the question is, so what if his messaging is prompting this? Is it just the massiveness of the buy or are there certain messages that you think are resonating? The other thing about Bloomberg, he has very smart advisors, mm -hmm. people who've been with him for a long time. Yeah, Mike and I know some of them. Yes, we do. Yeah. Well, we won't hold that against Bloomberg. <laughs> but, or against us, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he's got people who, you know, you run for, for mayor in New York. That is a really yes. tough proposition. Yep. That's not Especially easy. when it's open. Especially yeah. when it's open and sometimes even when it's not. He's been tested. I'm not sure he really has a message per se other than I'm a candidate with an interesting background. I have experience, but not the bad kind of experience down there in the swamp. But I don't think he's really honed a message. I, I think the one mistake he's made is pandering a little too much to the left, to the base, mm -hmm. because let Bernie and Warren for now fight over that group, Biden fight over mm -hmm. that group. I would, I mean, you know, when you're looking, especially with some of his issues, with some of his policies mm -hmm. in New York about African-Americans and the yeah, police. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So his, is his best uh, shot if if either everything gets split up in those first four or, or a, a Bernie or an Elizabeth go ahead and, and, and win the first, you know, three battles? First of all, I think his polling numbers will probably keep rising as everybody else battles it mm -hmm. out. And he keeps spending uh, And he keeps spending money, yeah. and he's running a very protected campaign. Uh, he's running right against Trump as opposed to the others, too. Right, and he's not showing up where a lot of people ask him pesky questions mm -hmm. that can really cause you some serious trouble, um, which for now is working out fine. But I think he'll do better on the debate stage than people think. I, I mean, do he's too. an experienced guy. You know, the sparring that you do in the press room at uh, City Hall in New York, is the probably the best training yeah. you can have for a politician. The thing I think about Bloomberg is, you know, his achievements in New York um, on lifestyle things. You know, no smoking in bars and other things. Uh, the big gulp, taking big gulps out of Seven Eleven, uh, are going to hurt him nationally, right? Once, if there's a focus on him from that, from a lifestyle standpoint, uh, it's an easy club which to beat him over the head with in some states. It depends on how conservative the Democratic voters are. And exactly. then in the general, obviously, the Republican voters. But if he's smart, what he'll do is spin it as, you know, healthcare is more than just about showing up yeah, at an emergency exactly. room. Yeah. Healthcare is about being healthy. Yes. Um, and he's smart. He can do that. I mean, I'll always like him because he got smoking out of the bars. Yeah, I'm not yeah. so sure about the big gulp, but yeah. you know, I, I don't want to be lugging like a 32-ounce bottle down, uh, down the street. So along these lines, I, I did notice, too, that in New Hampshire, what's at the Manchester paper, the union leader yes. um, endorsed Klobuchar. And so it sort of signifies, Toby, the this, there is a little bit of a split in the party between the progressives. And if you look at the polling, you add up you know, the moderates, people considered to be moderate, Biden, Klobuchar, et cetera, and the progressives, Bernie and Elizabeth, there is sort of a 35-35 sort of split. Do you think they'll have a clear candidate 
when they get to the convention? I doubt it. Yeah. Um, I doubt if anyone's going to have enough to get through a first ballot. So brokered convention? I think so. Now, sometimes you can do some wheeling and dealing, but you look at Bernie, you look at Elizabeth Warren, are either of them going to say, okay, I'm going to release my delegates to you? Right. Well, Bernie sure as hell will not. <laughs> and I doubt I if agree. Elizabeth, I mean, if Elizabeth Warren's going to release delegates, I doubt if it's going to be to Bernie, whose hand she wouldn't shake, yes. who said a woman's never going to be elected president. And the fact that she's not, you know, the nominee sort of proves it, at yeah. least for her. So there's a chance that that could happen. I mean, could any one of these candidates actually really... Don't forget, too, the field Break probably out, is yeah. going to winnow down a little. Right, yeah. right. Um, and all of a sudden... But that's pretty marginal. It's like, oh, goody, you're getting, you know, Klobuchar's 3%. You yeah. know, I right, don't know how right. much that's going to help. I, I, she's obviously a little more than yeah. 3 right now. So speaking, we're here in Boston. So we've had recently, in recent, at least our lifetimes, two presidential candidates from here, Dukakis and Kerry. Um, what do you know about Warren as a candidate, and how could she break out? She had a boomlet, yeah. right, like uh, most of these folks, yeah. uh, but she seems to be receding a little bit now. One of the problems for Warren is that she tends to make unforced errors. Yeah. And the whole DNA thing, right? Uh, just in the beginning. That and yeah. I'm going to have me a beer. Yeah. Um, you know, you can take nine million selfies. That's going to not necessarily make you an authentic candidate. Yeah. I think her main problem, though, is unforced errors and, and probably stereotype sexism. Um, right. You know, it's tough to split the difference between being tough and aggressive or not getting your point across. And that's you know, a problem uh, for for many um, women candidates. Right. And in some ways, I think she exacerbates many of those problems. It's interesting. You know, when I talk to people in the business world uh, who traditionally have voted Republican, senior executives and such, uh, they're open to another candidate. But when Elizabeth Warren's name comes up, that crowd of people, given some of the things she's done, on you know the regulatory agencies and that kind right. of thing, the biggest fear among leaders right now, CEOs, is more regulation, et cetera. They they just stand firm against her, yeah. Toby. It's really interesting. And in the old days, when you needed their money, yeah, that was important. Right. right. But basically, the internet and social media is the ATM it's for, the, for yeah, campaigns. It's change the game. So, not as important maybe as it used to be. Not 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 at uh, all. I don't really think. good observation. But by the way, yeah. they they love Bernie. Yeah, yeah that yeah. crowd. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> not uh, being a little facetious. facetious there, but yeah, 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 it's yeah. not exactly love, but it's like they almost take him better than they would take they her. Do. They do. Yeah. yeah, for some reason. Probably because they figure he won't get half of this done, and she might get half of it yeah, done. Exactly. So this election started. Uh, this past year, and the Democrats had a very diverse slate of candidates. You know, they, clearly we had uh, several women. Uh, you know, there's Kamala Harris, and obviously we've got Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar still in it. Uh, it was also diverse from a racial and ethnic standpoint. Still have Andrew Yang in it, but you know, Kamala Harris dropped out. Corey Castro, Booker, yeah. Castro. Uh, Julian Castro. Yeah. So, Beto, Beto O'Rourke, which who knows what the hell he was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, so the, the question, I guess, is, is this a tough game 
for a diverse individual for either a female candidate or someone else to play through. Let's ask Barack Obama that. Mm -hmm. I think it just depends on the candidate and great candidates can show what strengths are. Mm -hmm. And Obama was, you know, masterful. Now, on the other hand, you could say, yeah, but that's an anomaly, you know, yeah. out of how many years one successful African-American candidate running for president. Um, and it, it, it depends on sort of your perspective on how open voters are mm -hmm. um, to, to any type of candidate. Well, and I think to your point, it depends a lot on message and demeanor. We've had some conversations before. I had seen some of these candidates uh, down in South Carolina. And what was fascinating to me is how candidates want to touch almost every issue. And it's like if everything's strategic, then nothing is. Yeah, and and that's part of the success of a person like Trump is, you know, build the wall. Well, we don't have a wall, but at least he tends to sort of hone in on certain things. Mm -hmm. it, it reminds me of if ever you have to watch the dreaded State of the Union address and the laundry list yes. of like, okay, let no issue go untouched, right. you know? And so by the time you get into like the 43rd minute, you're also in the 43rd important. Initiative. Right. So you, you need to have both an ideology, um, a persona, and an, and an issue or issues. You know, and Bernie's pretty narrow the way yeah, that, exactly. that he goes. And everything sort of spins off of his key theme. Right. See, that's the secret. Yeah. Um, and even a guy like Steyer, you know, he's going to save the planet. Okay, right. um, that matters yeah. to, to people. Have you seen a lot of ads? Oh, gosh, season. yeah, and I don't even watch a lot of TV so, anymore. So, you know, regardless of the politics, who's who's doing really good TV ads? Uh, at the moment, I haven't seen... I used to work for a consultant named Ken Swope, and he called them yeah. Hey Martha spots, because all of a sudden the, t the, the commercial would come on and yeah. go, Hey Martha, here's that, that commercial. Right. Four years ago, Bernie had one of those, America. Right. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, 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 Try keeping the tears out of your eyes on that one. Just brilliant. You know, Steyer stuff has been particularly horrible. Um, <laughs> you know, having just sort of a walk me, talk me. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Bloomberg's are, you know, very craftsperson-like. Yeah. You know, they're well done. Is anyone going to say, oh, I want to watch that again? Buttigieg has some new ones that are kind of interesting. Warren, I haven't seen anything, yeah, which is sort either. of her focus on field. Um, actually, Yang, I think I've seen some of his also. Yeah. Um, we happen to live in a state oh, where yeah. it doesn't matter, so you don't see it, right? Well, we do see it because you have to buy Massachusetts uh, for New Hampshire. Uh, and that's why you want to own stock in WMUR, <laughs> Channel 9 up in Manchester. And look, where do the votes come from, especially right. the Democratic votes, the three counties, which are basically just Boston suburbs, suburbs. With, with less state tax. Um, and so, you know, the, they're watching Boston TV. So, and, and also, by the way, Massachusetts is a Super Tuesday state, and it does matter for it's a key Democratic mm -hmm. state. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with Warren here, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis everybody else. Yeah. Do negative ads still work? Negative ads work if you do it well. 
Um, if it resonates, um, the best negative ads are humorous negative ads. Right. Um, and if you can sort of mock your opponent effectively and make them a laughing stock, you know, this is what happened to John Kerry. You go back to 2004, oh, yeah. um, which way the wind blows, you know, Kerry on a, on a, uh, a Paris <laughs> a sailboard, right. you know, going back and forth, uh, you know, and you go back to 88. And what um, Atwater and Ailes did to Mike Dukakis, oh, the, tank. Oh, yeah. uh, the tank, Boston Harbor. Right, um, that's right. The Boston Harbor so, particularly effective. Yeah. Um, you know, those were not humorous. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you can get someone with a good, and actually Massachusetts used to have several consultants who were really good with humorous um, ads. They're not in the business anymore. But if you can do that, and I once worked with a guy out of Louisiana, a guy named Dino Cedar. Oh man, Dino just had these great ads that it's like you have to have a candidate with either a sense of humor or someone with no hope and figure, well, what the hell can he do to me? You know? <laughs> what's the what's the ad you're proudest of that you had any hand on? Oh, we, we did one for, and I, I'm not a writer, right, so yeah. I basically am a strategist. I was a media buyer and I yeah. was a producer, so I shot a lot of these, but I don't write them. We did an ad for a guy named Wayne Owens, who was actually on the House Judiciary Committee when they impeached Nixon. And Owens was out of the Utah 2nd Congressional District, okay. Utah. Now, granted, it's Utah, but it's also Salt Lake City. And Wayne Owens was a longtime Paul Mormon part of the yeah. church. And we did an ad, no matter which way the wind blows. And basically, it said that the that they do nuclear testing in Nevada when the wind blows towards Utah. <laughs> um, it was not humorous. It was, yeah, uh, yeah, it, yeah, and, yeah. And, and Wayne Owens was going to be the one who'd stop the nuclear wind. And um, Ken Swope wrote it. I got to shoot it. It was great. I spent four days going to all these cool parts of Utah with a great wow. film crew. Yeah. And because it was whichever way the wind blows, we brought one of those giant fans that you used to fill up hot air yeah, balloons. Sure, sure. Oh, man, that, that was great. Um, uh, I worked with, as I said, a guy named Dino Cedar, and we did um, things. Uh, oh, I'm forgetting who the right-wing Congress per He ran for everything down in um, Louisiana. And he did a thing called Jabberwocky, uh, which was a game show sort of, insulting this person with all the crazy things that he did. Uh, that, that was great because we ran the, I, I was the media buyer and, and Dino shot it. And so Louisiana at the time was in a recession, which yeah. it usually is. So I said, we got an ad, we're going to send it out. Oh yeah, send it. And all of a sudden I get a call one day later, we're sending you your money back. We're pulling the ad. Because <laughs> we don't want our tower bombed, you know. So uh, as we close out here, and as you've looked at various ads and recent campaigns and kind of see what's unfolding now, uh, you know, we're all going to get hit by a barrage, right? Especially in, in a lot of these early states of television ads, we're going to hear messages from all different kinds of candidates. What should we be paying attention to as consumers of that advertising? And what are we likely to see unfold? 
So what is the core message that mm-hmm. the candidate's trying to communicate? The problem is most of these ads, just like the State of the Union address, are these laundry lists of all the things. And so really any kind of good advertising is like a laser beam. Just You can only get across one idea. If you try to do more than that, you're in trouble. And that's something very challenging for candidates. It's just, well, something all of a sudden, Tony Schwartz called it the responsive cord. Um, Tony Schwartz was the famous um, consultant who did um, uh, ads against Goldwater back Mm -hmm. in 64. I interviewed him for my dissertation, and he was this Wizard of Oz type of character. (laughs) And he wrote a book called The Responsive Cord. And it's basically something magical resonates with the voters. And it's weird because sometimes it's this little thing in an ad. It's it's not even your whole ad, but it's this little five second part yes. that just you know works. So that tonnage mm-hmm. usually can't hurt, right. but uh, tonnage so isn't always. Is MAGA the responsive cord for Trump? Trump is the responsive cord for okay. Trump. Um, he is the Trump brand what you see, what you get. I mean, it's very ironic because in so many ways he's counter to what he's trying to communicate as his appeal. But people like that he's an ass kicker. They like that he doesn't back down. So, of course, the media gets all over him because he doubles down on everything. You know, in politics, we say, you know, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Trump brings in the backhoe. Um, And so there's... I don't know, actually, my poor students, uh, the first assignment I've just given them is to read um, the book called Audience of One, which is a marvelous book about why Trump is Trump. Right. Um, it's not, you know, it's it's just really good. And it's all about Trump being a TV addict. Okay. And so my question to them is, tell me why Trump is going to lose. Tell me why Trump is going to win. Do you think Trump is going to yeah. win or lose? Yeah. So, um, Terrific. You know, that, that, that's the yeah. worst. I mean, those things, yeah. my evals. I think I might write that paper in my uh, <laughs> Yeah, and then you get the evals at there. There you go. There you go. Toby, thank you. Oh, it's, it's been, been a treat. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.